0: The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to UUSF.org.
1: Wow, it's good to be back in this sanctuary and to be imagining you who are joining us today sitting in these pews. I've not been here since I left for retirement after serving as pastoral care minister. That was only two years ago, but doesn't it seem like a lifetime? I hope you have been safe these many months. And I wonder How did you spend the pandemic? Of course, we're not there yet where we can speak in past tense about the pandemic. But I mean, how did you spend the time when so many of us were holed up inside during what we came to call lockdown? Well, I had pretty good energy at the beginning. I dragged trunks out of a storage closet cut up all my old t-shirts, and sent them off to have a quilt made. It was incredibly satisfying. And now I get to sleep every night under a blanket of my history, A a restaurant I loved in New Orleans, a poem by Langston Hughes, the San Francisco Marathon I ran in a jillion years ago, Also, a depiction of the rose window from this sanctuary cut from a sweatshirt I was given during my ministerial internship here. Well, next out of the trunks were old photographs and documents. And I found a forgotten picture of my grandmother, young, posed with seven of her siblings on the porch of their family home in Greenville, South Carolina, sometime around the turn of the last century. That photo took me back to another front porch in Brunswick, Georgia, where as a small girl, I loved to sit with that dear grandmother shelling butter beans. And then my dive into history took a deeper turn at the request of my daughter. She was spending her pandemic looking forward to the birth of her first child. Can I show you a picture of my beautiful grandbaby? Oh, well, maybe later. Anyway, my Anna's pregnancy moved her to come to me with an earnest request. As she brought new life into the world, she wanted to know for sure. Were there enslavers in our family tree? Am I? Is she? Would the child who is coming be descended from people who believed in and practiced a right to own other human beings? Well, possibly even maybe probably, had always been enough knowing for me because aren't we all responsible anyway? All white people in this country, I mean. Even the ancestors who came here after chattel slavery ended, we all are part of a country where white people benefit from the systems put into place by slavery. Aren't we all therefore responsible for dismantling those systems? Well, I believe this anyway, and I've done my small best to live by it. But what that means in reality is that there have been times I've focused on that work and other times when I've been able to ignore it. Through much of my life, race has not been a daily concern of mine a luxury I have because I'm white. Anyway, I argued with my daughter a bit. Isn't it possible that our acknowledging that we're descendants of enslavers, if we find that to be true, would let others off the hook? But here is my beautiful pregnant daughter asking for knowledge. Of course I would try. Well, it took about 10 minutes on one of the genealogy websites to come up with records of the 1860 census and attached property records of my fourth great-grandfather. His name appeared beside 120 lines, 120, that detailed not names of people but designations, male or female, age, value. Each line denoting a human being in whom he claimed ownership. And this, of course, was just the beginning. So when I tell this story, people often ask, how did it feel to discover that? The last thing I want to do in a story about the history of chattel slavery is center the feelings of a white descendant of enslavers, which would be me. But of course, I am the center of this story. It's my story. So I'll say this. The undeniable knowing affected me in ways I hadn't expected and set me on a journey that is still unfolding and that I believe will continue to unfold for the rest of my days. As Carmen said, I can't unknow this either. It changed me. It hasn't been smooth. I'd like to report progress or at least a clear path, but actually, what it feels like a lot, what it, it feels like a lot of mucking about and not knowing what to do next. I joined an organization called Coming to the Table, which you may have heard of, a former community minister here. Dave Petit, of blessed memory, was active in this organization from near the time of its founding 15 years ago. This summer's national gathering of coming to the table <clears throat> brought <clears throat> this summer's national gathering brought together several hundred descendants of enslaved persons and descendants of enslavers to learn and work together. People who have been on this path a lot longer than I shared how genealogical research can uncover life-giving information for descendants of enslaved persons for whom it might be otherwise difficult to discover their lineage. No names, remember, were recorded in those government records. I've also learned the way different people are approaching the delicate work of repair, which some call reparations. Now there are people who will stop listening as soon as you say that word. Slavery was so long ago, they might say. It has nothing to do with me. But you know, it wasn't so long ago. A small digression here into mathematics. Recently, I encountered an interesting application of the laws of probability. With climate change and all, people have been asking how long it might be before human beings go extinct. Well, I won't take you through the calculations, I don't understand them anyway, but the conclusion, the probability model says that we humans have between 5,000 and 7.8 million more years to muck up or repair the planet. Even at the lowest likely possibility, that makes slavery seem like yesterday. End of mathematical digression. But some will say there's no way to calculate what reparations should be for slavery. It can't be done. I'm sorry, but this is nonsense. The answer to how is yes. As the community action theorist Peter Block put it, we should be having the conversation about how, not about if. An honest conversation in this nation about how we might make repair for inequality that traces back to the white colonialist project of stealing people's land and people's labor would be a good place to start to unwind the culture wars raging now about how we teach our history. But I don't wanna get lost in these arguments I want to talk about repair as a spiritual project, a spiritual practice. I know I can't fix all that's wrong. What I can do is work to fix myself and hope that through repairing myself and moving toward repair in any circles of my influence, a little pain in the world can be eased. I learned that working with Kay Jorgensen and Carmen Barsotti at the Faithful Fools, that personal and social change go hand in hand, have to. Tony Renee Battle, one of the leaders of the local group of Coming to the Table, told another Unitarian Universalist congregation recently, that reparation should be a spiritual practice. She urged white people to keep a reparations journal the way some keep a gratitude journal. So, repair as a spiritual project, what would be in that reparations journal? What does it look like? Well, a lot of different things, actually. I read a lot, working to untangle evil notions that were intentionally put into me by the mother who loved me. I pray a lot, learning to live with that. And with the reality that the grandmother I loved, loved people who were enslavers. Repair as a spiritual project can look like gathering companions who meet regularly to support each other in anti-racist practice. And I want to give a little shout out here to the six of my white Rossmore neighbors who have been meeting faithfully twice a month for more than a year now to help each other live authentically anti-racist lives. Y'all are my thought and heart partners in this work, and I thank you. Repair as spiritual practice can look like going to demonstrations and showing up for government meetings. It can look like reaching out to your white family members to have hard conversations. When Carmen and I were planning this service, We both mentioned the deadening effect of silence. Silence about these histories within the family. White silence. One of my Georgia cousins told me that none of our common ancestors could possibly have been enslavers because they were all Methodist ministers and Methodists did not permit their clergy to own enslaved. Well, that was just a few days before I found the records of Reverend Henry Davis Green, Methodist minister, from whom that cousin and I are both descended. For those who have money, reparations as spiritual practice might look like giving some away to black-owned organizations and looking for personal connections, even from a media distance, with the people in charge of the project. It could look like paying an annual land tax contribution to Segura Te, which works to put land back into the hands of people indigenous to this area. The organization that will receive today's, today's plate offering, and there's still time to add to it online if you're so inclined. And of course, it looks like writing letters to Congress urging the advancement of HR 40, the bill that would establish a commission to study reparations at the national level, the collective level. So we might begin to have this conversation on a national level and maybe begin to reconcile ourselves to the realities of our common history. There's so much more to say about that, but it's gotta be another sermon. I am deeply respectful of the way Nicole Hannah-Jones and her 1619 project team at the New York Times have drawn connections between slavery and the harsh realities of capitalism that all of us live under today. All of us. Reading and listening to those articles and podcasts with an open mind and heart, that for me was an occasion of spiritual awakening. My daughter and I are in an ongoing conversation about what might, what, what might make sense in terms of reparative work, more directly focused toward people descended from those who were enslaved by our ancestors. Moving in this direction is the most delicate of all. The last thing we want is to cause more harm. It's messy and it will never be done. And any sense of accomplishment is illusory but I have learned that perfection is a product of what black theologian Christina Cleveland calls the white colonialist imagination. And I think a hunger for accomplishment is cut from that cloth too. The important thing is to keep moving even when I don't know how to do it. The important thing is to keep saying yes the work. There's no goal of fixing it. What I want is to point myself toward leaving a better world for my grandchildren. I want to be a good ancestor whose example they would want to build on. It takes spiritual fortitude So I try to go to the gym, spiritually speaking, every day. Sometimes the gym looks like dancing, or like
0: singing. Let's go there now. We are trapped in history. History is trapped in us, said James Baldwin. When Mary sent me the draft for the service, I was struck by the word trapped in the quote in this order of service. History being trapped in us. Is that a forever state, or can we free it? I'm from Elk River, Minnesota. It's a city now, but when I was growing up, it was a small town of about 2,000 people, and I always felt like I was related to about half of them. My paternal grandparents, who were born in Hungary, came over as young children, and their families eventually settled in Minnesota, as did my mother's grandparents, who came over from Germany. They were all farmers. One of my favorite memories is going out into the woods where my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, first had a little house. We loved digging in the ground and finding the things that had been discarded and left behind when they had dragged the house from that spot out closer to the main county road. We loved living in the country where there was plenty of room to roam, where there was a hollow where we could play baseball with cousins and neighbors, where there was 80 acres of land where we would have hayrides with our youth group. When I was in high school, my parents bought a small cabin on Mille Lacs Lake, about an hour north of Elk River. We loved to go to the cabin and swim and Fish, I learned to water ski. Also around the same lake is the Mille Lacs Indian Reservation, the land of the Ojibwe tribe. I knew little about what a reservation was, or the history of the Ojibwe people, or any native community. I only know that we would sometimes stop at the museum when we were on vacation, and we'd buy little souvenirs at the store. In 1992, when I was in Nicaragua, I made a retreat with other North Americans and European folks who were living and working in the country. We had gathered to study together some materials had been published to mark the 500 years since Columbus landed in what he called the New World. Being in Nicaragua, we were compelled to study and read and talk about what had happened and continues to happen to the people, not only of Nicaragua, but in the many lands throughout South America, Mexico, and North America. The Contra War, financed by the US, had recently ended when Violeta Chamorro, a democratic president, supported by the US, was elected in Nicaragua. Knowing this drove our desire to understand the history. We were working with the people ravaged by the Contra war that was waged by the United States and its allies, professing to be fighting for democracy, which we quickly learned meant that transnational companies could come in freely to establish sweatshops, to ravish the forest, to send the the wood north, to forcibly take lands from the peasants, and so many more atrocities. The exploit of history was centuries old and current. It was at this retreat that I had a profound recognition of who I was, of what part of history I was directly related to. My grandparents and great-grandparents and their descendants were farmers and laborers who worked hard and had many struggles, good people who went to church and who cared for and about their neighbors. Here I was with my Franciscan community and all these others on retreat who were there to support the Nicaraguan people in their struggle to reclaim the lands taken from them by Somoza and his allies. And here I am reading about the people who were forcibly removed from the very lands my family farmed and vacationed on. As we were reading and discussing, all of a sudden, I felt this visceral sense of wanting to strip myself, to tear my garments and put on sackcloth and ashes. I had never used or thought of those words before, but they were in my mind like a command from my depths. At the moment of a painful recognition of who I was as a descendant of European settlers I was curious of the context of these words as they so described what I felt in that moment in looking them up I learned that for the Hebrew people the tearing of garments was a way of expressing great grief and sorrow sackcloth and ashes were put on to show distress, humility, desperation, and protest. Such was Mordecai's distress when he learned of the plan to annihilate the Jews. In the book of Esther, chapter four, it reads, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud bitter cry. I don't remember if I cried but there was a loud and deep cry inside that feels as piercing today as it did then. I can't unsee or unacknowledge what I know now? Is history trapped by ignorance and an unwillingness to understand painful realities and our place in them? Is it freed when we acknowledge that we live with structural and economic inequities and accept responsibility for the present and future as well as for the past. To free trapped history and to do the work of healing and reparation, I first must acknowledge the wrongdoing and do the work of repair. I need to keep reading and listening for the wrongdoings are over centuries and being done yet today. And it is still close to home. Land that belongs to the Native American people in Minnesota and many other places is still being disputed in the courts. My niece who is married to an Ojibwe man has a daughter who is harassed in school because her skin is darker than her classmates. The repairs are extensive and ongoing. It is not someone else's responsibility. It is mine. It is ours. And as we will hear in our reading today, we can never declare that the work is over.